Hello again, I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller. Today, uh, I'm sitting across the table from Megan Trishler from Preeple's Liberty. Uh, Megan, welcome to The Distiller Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. We are inside of Rose Street Cafe, which is also inside of or adjacent to uh, University Christian Church at the corner of Macmillan and Rose Streets in Cincinnati, right down by the University of Cincinnati. Um, the Rose Street Cafe, just a little bit about where we are before we get started with our conversation, is owned and operated by the University of Christian Church. It was the first fair trade coffee shop in mm-hmm. Cincinnati. You told me that? Mm-hmm. Yes, allegedly. That's what I, that's what I think. No, I, I believe <laughs> I'm pretty it. pretty certain. <laughs> I believe it because about 10 years ago, I used to play some shows here. Nice. Uh, there was a group of musicians who used to do a regular concert series mm-hmm. here, uh, curated by my friend Sharon Udaw, who now lives up in Cleveland. There you go. And... Um, we uh, almost every week there was something going on here and at the time Les Stoneham who's one of the founders of Deeper Roots Coffee was serving coffee here and Les was going down to Guatemala and beginning to really get into the fair trade um, and uh, sustainably sourced coffee exactly yep exactly a couple guys Les and Adam Shaw who Mm -hmm. now own and run Deeper Roots got their start here and I think opened the cafe really as a way to invite the community in do some good coffee but also have performance and art and all that good stuff so yeah at the risk of maybe like saying things that that University Christian Church or Deeper Roots might not want me to say (laughs) I have been involved in my past days in badly run church coffee Uh, shops yes where the mission overtook any discussion of quality Mm -hmm. this is not that Mm -hmm. this is some of the best copy in town it's a beautiful space. Yep. If you've never been here and you're in Cincinnati or coming through, stop by Rose because it's one of the best cups of coffee that you're going to get in town. Mm-hmm. It's a welcoming environment. And oh, it happens to be mm-hmm. adjacent to and run by a church with a great sense of mission in Guatemala and where yeah. they're sourcing their coffee and all that. Totally. So thanks to Rose uh, and to University Christian Church for hosting us. And thank you again for coming. Yay, yes, excited. So, uh, Megan Trishler, you are, as I understand your title, is mm-hmm. Program Director at People's Liberty. That is my title, yes. What do you do for a living, Megan? <laughs> what, is, what do you actually do? What does do? that mean? Yeah. Great question. Um, well, I'll start by saying I, my background is in graphic design. Okay. So, I have a design background and a real love for design. Mm-hmm. But for the past mm, maybe five, six years or so, I have found myself working in philanthropy, mm-hmm. a designer inside philanthropy, which has been interesting. Yeah. And it is that path that brought me here to Cincinnati. Um, so about five years ago, a private family foundation here in Cincinnati called the Hale Foundation, mm-hmm. H-A-I-L-E, Mr. and Mrs. Hale, um, invited myself and a business partner at the time to help them dream a little bigger, think a little broader about um, about their philanthropy and how they think about their grant making, mm-hmm. and um, and what we ultimately developed uh, is this entity called People's Liberty, which we call a philanthropic lab. Okay, um, it's a learning. It's meant to be a learning lab for the Hale Foundation, um, and there were really kind of three. I would say three big things that the foundation was really thinking about as we were developing People's Liberty. Um, one was how do we be more experimental in our grant making process? What does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Um, the Hale Foundation, not unlike most foundations, are set up in such a way where they can cut checks, give grants to 501c3 nonprofits, right. and that's what the Hale Foundation's been doing for the past eight years. Um, but this notion of how do we be more experimental was a, something on their brains, which was interesting to me. Uh, the second big thing the foundation was really thinking about was what would it look like to have a physical outpost? Mm-hmm. So again, not unlike a lot of um, 
foundations in any city of any size. Uh, they are often on the top floors of nondescript downtown buildings, really right. quite removed from the communities that they're investing in. So this notion of what if we had like sort of a satellite outpost office in one of the communities we're investing in, what would that look like? And then the third big question, and perhaps what I think the, is the most interesting question, is how do we uncover and cultivate the next generation of leadership in our community? So how do we find the next people who are going to run for office, lead community council, start businesses, start nonprofits, right. whatever. How do we find those people, support those people, and really build that kind of army of uh, do-gooders, if you will? Yeah. So all that to say, People's Liberty is the initiative that we worked with the foundation to develop to try to uh, answer some of those big questions. And uh, we're based over at Finley Market. Mm-hmm. And so... My role, we're a small, we're a lead team of three, um, so we all wear many hats. So I guess on paper, my job is to, um, I oversee all of our design and storytelling and communications and everything visual and verbal coming out of that place. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of us just do all of it. Yeah. Small, <laughs> so small yes, organizations, I'm a program everybody director. does what needs to be done. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you, so you direct the programs. I have yeah. several questions going back into that. Yeah, Why sure. you? you? You started off by saying that the Hale Foundation reached yeah. out to you to help them with this. Yeah. What in your pastor and their knowledge of what you were capable of led them to look to you to do that? Yeah. Well, I would say, so I graduated from, I went to undergraduate design school up in Detroit. I'm from Michigan. And I've always really had a passion, at least at that point in my life, a real passion for thinking about how design can impact people and impact communities. And, you know, I grew up in Flint, Michigan. I studied in Detroit. So I've kind of always been in these cities that in many ways I would define as kind of broken places, places that need to be reinvested in in some way. And so my kind of career trajectory out of school sort of took me to a number of those cities, um, developing projects, uh, places, spaces where people are coming together to uh, make a difference in their community. And so um, the Hale Foundation, one program director in particular, my boss, Eric Avner, um, he saw some of the work that we were doing in other cities up in Detroit and down in Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. And it was really an invitation that, uh, you know, said, what what could you do in Cincinnati? Um, And so we sort of came to discover that. Talk a little bit about that work because you've got a pretty diverse and interesting background prior to coming to Cincinnati. Give us, you know, you don't have to go too deep, but I know that there's some interesting vocational work, but then there's also a big trip that you went on that informed a lot of that work. That's right. Yes. So, um, so what do I mean when I say places and spaces where people come together? So right out of the gate, uh, right out, right after school, I ended up in rural Alabama working with an organization to build a pie shop called Pie Lab. Okay. Uh, an actual... It was an actual pie shop, but it doubled as a community space. Okay. And in this particular rural town of 2000, there were very, very few places where people from different backgrounds, different races actually came together to communicate and talk Mm -hmm. and be and so we developed a pie shop you can get a slice of pie for two bucks cup of coffee for one buck that was it and just come in and everything was on real plates there was no takeaway like you just sit in and sit down and talk so that was sort of my first project coming out of design school was like we're gonna build a physical place and I'm not an architect I mean I'm a graphic designer but I really saw firsthand how kind of some of those same design sensibilities that I use to think about how words and images communicate, you know, can be put 
to, to um, put into use when we think about how people communicate and what, what we, what, how we can shape those sort of places and experiences. What, what at that point <clears throat> drew you to making something physical in the world versus just making more uh, designs? Because um, there's a lot in there yeah. that's not included in a design degree. Yeah. The general, call it philanthropic uh, orientation, community yeah. orientation. I think it was... It was um, I think I always had a hard time reconciling. I mean, the, 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 the small college that I went to, you know, a, a incredibly expensive um, private design college was situated in the heart of Detroit. And I could never really reconcile how the stuff that we were doing and the things that we were designing, how it was relative to the brokenness, frankly, right. all around us. And I think as I came to learn that design, no matter your discipline, whether you're designing buildings or toothbrushes or posters or whatever, mm-hmm. design is inherently problem solving. Mm. And, you know, I was really interested in, well, how do we use those, those sensibilities to solve civic and social problems and really look at new ways of thinking about the urban environment and thinking about how our spaces and places can, you know, cultivate connection and community. And so I think it was just by nature of what my surroundings were when right. I was a student mm-hmm. that made me say, well, geez, like, who cares about toothbrushes? Like, I want to be designing, right. like, real things that touch people um, in a different way. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, absolutely. That it does. was some of it. Yeah. yeah. So you started the pie shop. Yeah. So I started a pie shop. Uh, then I ended up back in Detroit, uh, hopped around a little bit, but long story short, ended up, uh, back up in Detroit. And that's when I really got connected to the philanthropic sector. So okay. Detroit, um, has a lot of private dollars being pumped into it presently and about 10 years ago. And I think I was at that point, you know, in my mid twenties had this passion for doing more community based work, but was also you know, trying to figure out how to make a living doing that, right? Because yeah. I couldn't just keep doing free work for nonprofits right. or whatever. The pie shop was great, but at, you know, at a certain point, it was like, I have to start paying some debt, you know? Yeah. Um, and there was a light bulb moment for me, which was, okay, well, foundations exist to fund community-focused work, community development projects. Maybe mm-hmm. I should go see what that's about right. and see if I could do some work alongside those, those folks and foundations. And so it was really in Detroit that I started to work for some private family foundations who were investing, reinvesting in the urban core. We and you did that by just beginning to apply for grants or by contacting those no, foundations? No, by really working as a consultant with okay. those foundations. So to give you an example, um, one of the group in Detroit, they were really starting to think about, you know, I think Detroit has a unique problem in that, um, you know, it's a city that people are coming back to, mm-hmm. but how do you get them to stay? To, to, yeah. um, how, you know, how do you make it sticky? Um, and uh, a foundation that I was working for was saying, okay, well, how do we sort of, you know, attract and retain talent to this place? But also once folks get here, how do we connect them to mm. interesting jobs, places to live, um, volunteer opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, that's like a great design problem. Right. Big question. I don't know. How do you do that? Um, what we ultimately ended up developing is a physical storefront on Woodward Avenue in downtown Detroit called the D-Hive. Hmm. And it was designed to be, I always said it was a talent retention tool disguised as a welcome center. So um, it was a welcome center for all intensive purposes. You could go in, 
uh, and whether you were looking for, hey, I've never been downtown Detroit, uh, point me to a great bar. Right. Great, we could do that. Or, hey, I just moved here from Tulsa. How do I find a job? Or, yeah. hey, I'm in from Brooklyn. Where's the Brooklyn neighborhood of Detroit? Right. You what know? a great idea. Yeah, and so it was just, it was air traffic control for people. Um, and that was a three-year three-year project. Um, it had a timeline on it, uh, which is similar to People's Liberty. People's Liberty is a five-year initiative, but you know, there's a, intentionally baked in sort of a sense of urgency and a sense of this is just an experiment. Right. You know, I think so many organizations they just exist forever. But are you really doing the work that you set out to do? And I think we said, I think in three years we can figure out if this is working or not. So that was kind of the second big <clears throat> project that I did. Um, and then I actually started to work in Cincinnati in maybe 2011, 2012. Um, that's when I really connected with the Hale Foundation. And again, it was an invitation to say, you know, we're seeing the work that you all are doing. What could you do? What mm -hmm. could you do here? And um, yeah. What's the Hale Foundation's general mandate? Is yeah. there a, a specific area that they want yeah. to influence? So the foundation started in, I think, 2008, uh, 2009, um, four key funding funding areas. So they invest in education, um, arts and culture, human services and veteran affairs, and then community development. So okay. there's kind of, yeah, four tiers of funding. And they do, it's one of the bigger, bigger private foundations here in Cincinnati. They do about 10 to $12 million of grant making every year to roughly 70, 80 nonprofit organizations. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting. So right now, yes. given, given all of that, getting you up to speed. Oh, and tell us a little bit oh, yeah. about the, because I feel like the trip that you took is oh, significant yeah, in informing yeah. oh, all of good. this as well. Yes. So okay. I know that that exists, but I don't know the details. Yeah. All right. So, um, okay. So as we were, when the Hale Foundation said, we want you to do something in Cincinnati, we said, okay, well, we need to really look at what's happening. Like what, what? what are all these sort of physical spaces that are popping up everywhere? Everything from maker spaces to, um, you know, community art centers to you name it, these kind of physical places where people are coming together to impact their city or impact their community. What are those? How are they funded? How are they structured? Um, what do they do? Et cetera, et cetera. And so myself and a business partner at the time, we put together a three month, road trip uh, to go look at, I think we went to 11 different cities, looked at about 30 different, we were calling them civic innovation labs, but uh. essentially 30 different places and spaces where people were coming together to, to do, um, do community-oriented work. Um, and again, everything from, you know, we, in Philadelphia, the city has an internal innovation lab. Everything from something like that to... Uh, you know, an art center in Indianapolis to a giant accelerator in San Francisco, you know, all types of those places. And we put together a, a, a report, a book, that really drew out kind of some of the insights. Um, and that work was done because, again, the question was, what can we do in Cincinnati? What's unique about this place? What do we need here? What are some of the opportunities or challenges and what can we build to respond to that? You know, so it wasn't just about let's just we want to create some kind of civic hub. Let's just make it. It was about like what what what's working out there and what can we sort of cherry pick? Um, and I think one of our biggest insights was that philanthropy was not at the center of any of these types of places. You know, they were often funded by philanthropy, but we didn't uncover anything where a foundation was saying, all right, we're actually going to proactively drive hmm. something. We're going to drive uh, a project. And so we thought that was the unique opportunity for the Hale Foundation was build it, 
fund right. it and like let's run it and do something. So how does people's liberty differ from, I mean, you hit on yeah. it a little bit there, but it yeah. sounds like it's a fairly unique venture in terms of the things that you've seen. Yeah. What is unique about p- people's liberty versus everything that you've encountered? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, um, so people's liberty invests directly in people. So we literally can cut a check to a person to go and do a creative project in the community. And that is a really rare thing for a foundation to do. And it's a really rare thing, um, at least from what we've found, the size of the grants we offer. So we have everything from, we have three grants, a $10,000 grant, $15,000 grant, and then our biggest award is a $100,000 fellowship. Mm-hmm. And, um, and those are checks to people. I mean, we went through a nine-month process with the IRS to actually figure, to try wow. to figure out how to legally be yeah. able to cut a check to a person. So I would say that's sort of the secret sauce, or that's what makes us different. Um, and it's been interesting because there's been a number of, you know, we're, we're, we're halfway through this five-year uh, five timeline with People's Liberty, and there's been a number of foundations from other cities that have come and said, what are you doing? How are you doing that? Mm-hmm. Can we do that? Do we want to do that? Yeah. You know, um, so I think that's a big, big part of it. I think the other thing is, you know, um, I mentioned earlier that so many foundations are really removed from the communities that they're investing in. And, you know, therefore that sets up this sort of structure of we are the funders way up here and you are the nonprofit way on the ground. And, Here's your money. Give us a final report when your project's done. Oh, and by the way, solve the problems that you're trying to right. solve. See you later. Yeah. And I think what we're trying to do is challenge the way that funders relate to those that they fund and to sort of say, actually, we're going to be in this with you. We're going to walk alongside you. Um, you're going to get stuck. We're going to help you. Um, so I think that's a big part of it, too, is sort of maybe just challenging the way that foundations and philanthropy relates to um, you know, those that they grant to. And then I think the other thing is like design has been at the center of this thing from the beginning. You know, we really, really value really good design and mm-hmm. storytelling and communications. Um, so yeah, so those are, I think, a few of the things that, that we sort of feel like we're doing differently and hopefully that comes through. You're halfway through the yeah. five year. Is there a possibility for it to extend beyond the five years if it, if it proves out and it's working and yeah, that's kind of the big question. Um, and I would say not in the current form. Okay. I think that there's, we have a lot of ideas and we're really entering, we're calling it our year of inquiry this year. We're really starting to actually almost put pencil back to paper and say, all right, well, what are we learning? Mm -hmm. What have we done? Well, what has not worked so well? Um, and we've been sitting down with, you know, I think 50 people, for coffee to sort of say like, what do you see? What's special about this place? Is there anything special about this place? Just trying to almost go back to that kind of research um, or insight phase and kind of uncover what others think people's liberty is. But I would say in its current iteration, it will not exist at the end of 2020. Um, But yeah, we do have some ideas about what could exist. And it's been kind of a nice, for me, it's been a great mental challenge to actually like get back into that type of visioning work right. um, out of my inbox and, you know, like thinking, dreaming a little bit again about that. So that's been good. Uh, yeah. Without, I mean, you said this is sort of the year of inquiry yeah. and you're in the middle of it and yeah. you're still working with the Hale Foundation yeah. and still having to make sure that even though the relationship is different from typical philanthropy, that you're satisfying what they expect. Yeah. Given all of that, is there anything that you can share that you would have done and if the answer is no, and it's too early, no, but no, like, what are you learning? What has surprised you so yeah, far? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think about this all the time. I mean, I, yeah, that's just, 
always thinking about, in fact, my team has intentionally said like, Megan, we need to stop breaking things that aren't bro- broken. Cause I'm always just like, we could <laughs> do this better. Be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just let yeah. it be fine. Um, I hear something I think we're learning. I, I think right out of the gate, there was this real sort of expectation or thought that, you know, we were going to be uncovering people with really, really game changing ideas. Mm-hmm. I would say, so we funded, I think our number, we funded maybe 66 people at this point. Um, and a good number of those projects are good projects um, and great people. Some of those projects are just okay, mm-hmm. and some of them just don't really work. Um, and a lot of them, you know, get to that point where it's like, is this actually a sustainable thing? Could this live on? Right. And a lot of them know, you know, they're side projects. For $10,000, you know, people aren't quitting their jobs and, and doing things. Yeah. But I think what we're uncovering, so I think from the, I thought from the get-go that maybe the projects would matter more. And that's mm. not to say that they don't, but I think one of the biggest things that we're seeing is it's actually what those individuals do next and then after that and then after that, that actually is what matters. And so to go back to that idea of trying to uncover and sort of cultivate you know, the next generation of leadership, I actually think that's what People's Liberty is producing. It, it really isn't so much about, it's nice that all these projects are developing. Sure. But I think we're sort of, we're trying to develop a community, an army of, you know, folks who, can't, who give a damn about this place and yeah. who want to stay connected and stay involved. And so I think what's cool and what we're seeing is grantees, you know, they go through their, their project cycle, they do a project, it's great or it's not. But then they, they're staying kind of in the family. They're helping other grantees. They're saying, okay, what can we do next? So there's this kind of growing um, ecosystem that seems to be evolving, which I find really interesting. Um, I mean, there's a lot of challenges with giving grants to people because people move and life happens to people. And, you know, there's all kinds of things like that yeah. that I think we've learned. Um, it sounds like an interesting insight, though, because yeah. while you might say that you're investing in people, mm-hmm. And that's okay. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, you're still investing in projects. Yeah. And the insight that the investment in people is turning out to be more impactful long-term than the that's, investment in individual projects, is it, it sounds like an important thing to learn. I think so. And I think that's, that's kind of, I think that's what we're discovering and kind of uncovering. And, and so now the big question is, what's our responsibility to those folks? Or what's the opportunity as this mm-hmm. network of people continue to grow? Um, you know, what, what could we do with that? And so that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Give us a little bit of an idea, maybe just some highlights, because I have yeah. not been, I've sort of watched the work yeah. of People's Liberty from afar, but I, two weeks ago, got an email from my friend Geraldine Sparrow, who, Hi, Geraldine. who yeah. you know, uh, just got one of the grants and yeah. is sort of telling people about what she's doing and hosting uh, yeah. opportunities for people to talk about it in her space. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of like I'm starting to see the activity pop yeah. up, if only because it's it's getting That's into my circle, cool. of, circle well, of folks. But Great. tell us a little bit. Um, obviously, I've set up Geraldine's. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about some of the projects that you're that you're yeah. excited about that are going on. What, totally. Mostly in terms of like let people know what kind of work sure. is coming out of this. Yeah. So, um, so I'll talk about this with our three different grant opportunities. So we have our $10,000 project grants. That's what Geraldine received. Mm-hmm. Those are $10,000 and you have six months to go and um, do a project, uh, which obviously you're not quitting your job for $10,000. These are your sort of night and weekend side hustle Mm -hmm. projects. Um, Part of the People's Liberty Building, 1805 Elm Street at Finley Market, is a uh, 800 square foot storefront. Um, And so we have what we call our Globe Grant, because it's the Globe Building. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a grant, if someone has an idea that is really space specific or would really benefit from a 
storefront in a vibrant city market, right. um, that's a great a grant opportunity. And that's $15,000 and you get the keys to that space for two to three months. Cool. Um, I was mentioning earlier that we're also trying in 2018 uh, a second space, uh, a much more raw, bigger 2,500 square foot space in Camp Washington. Um, so that's something that we're just trying this year just to see what it looks like to kind of branch out into another neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then our biggest award is our $100,000 fellowship, which we do two of a year. Um, And that is a put your career on pause. That's sort of our, we've always thought about it as our sort of local MacArthur Genius Grant. You know, if you could take sort of a civic sabbatical and put everything on pause and go and focus on one big challenge or one big thing um, for a year's time, what would you do? And so so that's the fellowship. And so I'll talk about our, uh, one of our fellows from um, last year, 2017 fellow, Tracy Brumfield. Tracy has an amazing story. Um, comes from a marketing journal journalism um, background, and in her life has gone through a number of um, has had a number of challenges. She's been in and out of incarceration, um, recovering addict, uh, has experienced homelessness among other things, and that's been part of Tracy's story. Um, but because of that, uh, as she's kind of gone through that process of recovery, she's found herself back in the jail, the Hamilton County Jail, doing some volunteer work, getting mm-hmm. to know those women, um, you know, just spending time and, and doing work with them. And really uncovered, um, both from her experiences and from those experiences with, with the, the folks that she's connecting with, that while you're sitting in jail, there are very few ways for you to navigate the resources available in this city uh, upon release. And so time and time again, she's saying, we're just seeing the same people come back Mm -hmm. in jail. Like it's just, it's a recidivism problem. Like it's just, you're getting, you're in for something like drugs or let's say you're, you're out because the jail gets overcrowded and then you're just right back in because when you get out, there isn't uh, a support system there for you. Um, but Cincinnati is really resource rich. We have tons of organizations working on housing and homelessness right. and finding people jobs and getting them into recovery programs and on and on. But how do people find that? Yeah. You know, if you're literally, you know, if the warden says you're out at 5 a.m. on Thursday, who do you call? Who do you call? Probably your dealer. You yeah. know, like probably that your network. Exactly. Yeah. So Tracy said, "This is stupid. Like this is also not that hard. We need to somehow be finding a way to get." these resources into the hands of people while they're in jail so that they can start to plan for their um, path upon release. And so Tracy spent her fellowship year creating um, a a newspaper, for lack of a better way to describe it, a four-page newspaper called Rise Up News. Mm. Rise stands for Re-Enter Into Society Empowered. And it is, uh, it helps, it's, it's distributed within the jail, which is, from what we could tell, this hasn't been done wow. before, which yeah. is great. Goes into the jail, um, people get copies of it, and it's also got stories of hope in it, you know? And I think that's, obviously, this region is facing the t- terrible opioid epidemic, mm-hmm. and we're hearing about that all the time. But what about the stories of recovery and the stories of people who have actually kind of found Success some stories. hope? Yeah, and so that's what RISE is trying to do, is help people navigate those resources upon release, but also, you know, say that, hey, it's possible. Yeah. Um, and Tracy's been incredibly successful. We really focused her this year on getting six issues out and into the hands of the people who need them to see if it works. And I think she's going to go on now and she's got some great partnerships to, to make this a lasting, um, lasting thing. Her cool. mo- momentum is just crazy. So, so that's a bigger example, but I mean, yeah. I think it's a powerful one. And Tracy's story, I mean, 
you know? There's no reason, there's no way we would have been able to meet someone like Tracy if we weren't doing something like People's Liberty. Yeah. The foundation would have never found her. Impossible, right. you know? Make that connection. Nope, impossible, yeah. And so I think that's what this has been, this has been about. It's how do you take some of this, these resources and... To me, I think foundations, the power is not just in the money. It's the Rolodex. It's like the connections that they can bring. How do we democratize that? Yeah. Like, you know, like, and bring that to the people, people who are on the ground doing the good stuff. So, right. anyway. Uh, civic innovation. Yeah. That's a word that you use. Innovation is a buzzword, obviously. Yes. How does the work that's being done in the civic innovation space and social innovation yeah. space relate or not relate to other things that we would think about? Because, hmm. you know, there's there's Cincinnati has a pretty vibrant like technology startup culture and there's innovation happening throughout the city. But I get the sense that those two Mm. worlds don't necessarily connect Hmm. with each other. Do they, is there something I'm missing? Should they, or is that just, are they completely different? Explain that a little bit more. You mean sort of like innovation happening, like in the tech world or or... any other types of innovation. Like it Mm. seems like civic and social innovation projects like this, how are they connected or not connected to other forms of innovation Mm. that are happening in the city? That's a good question. I don't know if I know how to answer that one, to be honest, though. Are, I mean, do these two worlds talk to each other at all, or is the sort of for-profit innovation space not even, oh, not even speaking to the mean. non-profit innovation space? Yes, that. <laughs> That's <laughs> not, what I see. No conversation at all. Yeah, I don't know that it's um, happening as much as it could be happening. You know, even I was just having coffee with a, um, a friend the other day who's doing some amazing work in, uh, at UC, you know, in the academic space. And she was telling me about some of the innovation and some of the stuff that's happening in medicine and everything else at the university. And I said, my God, like, how do we find, <laughs> who knew, you know? Right. Like, the, so I, I think there's these, a little bit of these silos and I think it happens in academia and on the ground and with nonprofits and communities. And I think it kind of happens corporate too. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I know LPK has an innovation lab. P&G right. obviously has an innovation lab. Everybody's reinventing the Everybody's wheel. Everybody's reinventing the wheel. Yeah. And I think that's, um, man, yeah, that's a great question and a great thought that I don't really think about too much. But I wonder if there are ways to, to bridge that more. Because mm. I don't know that those conversations are happening as much as they could. Yeah. Yeah. It just makes me think, I mean, even physical spaces, yeah. like the startup incubator spaces that are down on yeah. Vine Street in Cincinnati yeah. are a hop, skip and a jump from where you guys are. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there's some different goals there. And I think we were, we tried to be really clear from the get go that we're, I mean, we're not an acceler- accelerator right. space and we don't fund businesses and we certainly don't fund kind of um, highly backable, business, you know, venture capital. Yeah, you're seeking. not going to make anybody a bunch of money. Exactly. In the, in the and world. yeah, and we've started to put that in our applications. Like, ask yourself, does this benefit the community before it benefits you? Right. If the answer is no, then you should not be applying for this yep. grant. However, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's some obviously smart, amazing things happening um, down at the Brandery, out of Centrifuge. Mm-hmm. Is there an opportunity for the for us to talk more? Probably. Yeah, that's a good challenge. I don't know how to do that. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's switch gears a little bit because this is all contextualizing um, what is at least the, in the selfish interest of the podcast. Yeah, ultimately, right. a discussion about your your work and how you've come okay. to this work. Does this have anything to do with anything you saw yourself doing when you were going to design school? Man. <sighs> um. Yes. Because I think that, well, like I mentioned, I think that my, my growing up in, an, in a 
city like Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. and my going to school in a city like Detroit, Michigan, which is a city that at its height had 2 million and at yeah. the last census had 600,000. And it's just, you know, people left it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, a, it's abandoned, you yeah. know? And I think that as a student, it was just for, it was a really forming time for me to say, like, I can't just go to New York. I thought I, that's what I was going to do. I was going to go to New York or go to London and work as in design as a, you know, in the commercial or corporate side yeah, of it. Yeah, go to a design hub. Yeah. Do amazing work. Totally. Win awards. Exactly. Yeah. But I think it was in my, you know, final year as a student that I just said, this is just, it's not me, mm-hmm. you know? And I think these paths have opened that have allowed me to somehow form a career. I mean, sometimes I feel crazy because I sort of feel like I don't really involve, I'm not really involved in the design community in the traditional sense. And I'm certainly not, a philanthropist, you know, I, I kind of feel a little bit like an in-betweener a lot. Like, mm. who are my people? Who are my peers? Um, you know, I'm a designer working inside philanthropy, which is weird. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess I, I saw I saw myself doing work that, that I felt impacted real people in real places, but maybe never in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How is that changing? Because I think... Um I think 10 years ago, if you'd said, yeah, designer working in philanthropy, never heard of that. Now, uh, with groups here in Cincinnati, like Design Impact, with groups like IDEO, with different, that seems to be more and more common. Is that being driven by just the general sense of where the world is at and they need to make a difference? Is it being driven by the business side somehow? Yeah, I think a little of both. Um, That's a great question. I think when I was a student, there was just starting to be this conversation around, it was called different things. It was design for good or citizen design or impact design. You know, all these, this language was kind of um, starting to, you know, emerge and some sort of design writers were starting to write about like what does it mean like what's design ethics what does it mean to be a citizen first a designer second you know and I just like latched onto that stuff I got so excited about that but then the question always was like how do I practice that how do I do that someone show me like how do you make a living doing that because all the design jobs are in the ad agencies exactly exactly and so it's like if you want to eat then just start designing banner you know banner ads for jeep or whatever that's like my peers like went on to go and do it's like automotive industry designing um stuff yeah so i think i hope i still think we have a way to go but i think that there are more pathways for designers for designers who want to do this type of work i think there's a much more of a uh, there's a broader conversation Mm -hmm. There's more studios that are developing that are focused on um, this type of work. I like to think there's more funding available for this type of work. But I really think, and this is what I get really jazzed about because uh, I've done some teaching and I really, one of the things I do at People's Liberty is I oversee our, we have a residency program, which is essentially is a co-op or internship program. But, you know, young designers just out of DAP come and work with us for three months and I get to sort of mold their minds a little bit. Right. Um, and you know, and show them that there are alternative paths, that they don't just have to sell stuff with their design career, um, that they can do other things. Um, But yeah, so I think the conversation is changing. uh, And I, yeah, I guess I remain hopeful, hopeful that there'll be more and more young designers like saying, yeah, we want to, we want to sort of expand what we're able to do. Well, and even that sense that you hinted about that the nonprofit world is not known for, for great execution Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. creative spaces yeah, yeah. Uh, is changing yeah yeah um, and I think people expecting more yeah. from the nonprofit world totally. in a good way and wanting to be to be helpful wanting to participate in the evolution of the nonprofit world 
looking as sexy as the for-profit world in terms of the materials that they're creating. Totally, yeah, and I think there's a real kind of, uh, I guess, you know, I think storytelling has become a bit of a buzzword. We use it all the time, but, you know, there is a trend around storytelling and the value of story, and that's what designers can do. I mean, it's, it's, piecing together a narrative and making someone care. You know, well, that's how they sell soap. <laughs> and having, yeah, no, that's <laughs> you know? what I was going to say. Having worked yeah. at ad agencies yeah. for years, you're trying to drum up a story that doesn't exist to sell right. a product that nobody needs when, in fact, the story is at the heart of the nonprofit exactly. work. Exactly. So, and how do you make somebody care? You know, and yeah. I think you're right that I think nonprofits are generally not, um, you know, they don't have the line items baked in for that type yeah. of, you know, that type of work, but it's so important. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you say that, um, and I think you've answered this a little bit uh, around it, would you say that your sense of mission drives the work decisions that you make, or would you say that the work decisions you've made have informed and driven your sense of mission? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think it's a little bit of a dance. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I I think that... um, you know, I think I've been really lucky to, I mean, my, again, like my question has always been, you know, how do you, how do I do work that, that I feel like really matters? Um, and how do I sort of align what I think I'm good at with where I see a need and, um, you know, and how does that kind of become, become my path? So I guess I've always sort of really wanted to have that purpose or that intention in the work that I do. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think that these opportunities that have unfolded, have really allowed me to exercise that. I have to, I think, pinch myself sometimes. Like, it's pretty, it's pretty nuts. It's pretty mm-hmm. crazy um, that that's kind of happened. So I think it's a little bit of both. Do you and think I, about it in terms of work? Do you think about it in terms of, yeah. you know, I'm going to work, I've got a job? I mean, obviously there's that component yeah. to it. Or do you, is it? It's much more personal. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think about it in terms of work. I mean, there are days, right, that just feel like work. And yeah. you're like, why the hell am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> this is hard. Um, or this is way too much email. Why do we email so much? <laughs> um, Solve you know, that problem. Yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I won't go down that tangent. But yep. anyway, yeah, I think most of the time, my question is, what am I meant to do in this world? And how am I going to do it? And I think that these opportunities have afforded me a chance to try to figure that out. And I think I'm just still figuring it out. I'm only 31 years old. So I'm just trying to figure it out, I guess, and connect with others who, who are also asking those questions. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. What, uh, what sacrifices have you made to be able to do mm. this work? Because there is, you know, we talked about the design yeah. jobs in New York and London, but yeah. I have a feeling it's uh, there are more specific sacrifices other than just not choosing to take a, yeah. an agency job for totally. a bunch of money. Yeah, I mean, I think most folks who are maybe entrepreneurial or who run their own things would probably share this sacrifice. But I think it's just always on, you know, mm. and I think it's hard. And I don't mean that in the sense, like, I'm not checking email at 9, nine o'clock. You know, I pretty much have hard, like, hard starts and hard stops to work which I think I've just learned, I guess, in the past few years, really, to have those boundaries. And because I'm married and want to have a relationship. Um, but I think there's a real sense or maybe a real danger, particularly anyone working in even, you know, any of the creative industries where your identity becomes really associated with the work that you're doing. And so I can think of a lot of moments when, you know, if things aren't going well at work, then I'm not going so well. I'm not right. doing so well, you know, or this thing that is just not coming to fruition like I had hoped must mean that I am not 
doing the right thing. Right. You know, and so there's this real... And it's that's an important choice of words. I'm not doing... It's, that's yeah. different from saying I'm not doing this well enough to yeah. I'm not doing the not right doing thing. doing the right thing. It's, uh, yeah. Maybe I'm in the wrong work overall. Yeah. Yes. And I I've, I've, would be lying if I said I haven't thought about even quitting this work at least five times and mm-hmm. just saying, wait, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just not doing the right thing because it's hard sometimes. And it just, sometimes it just doesn't work. And so I think there's this real, maybe the sacrifice there is that I don't, I can't just sort of say it's just work and I'll just put it over there and I'll pick it up again on Monday. It's like, it's community, it's community oriented. so it's always in my brain. And yeah. every time I'm sort of encountering people, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about it, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm thinking about the relationships and it's people's lives, you know, we're, we're investing in individual people. Those are real relationships forming, you know, yeah. um, and so it feels sometimes really heavy. And so I've been really trying to figure out how to, how do you deal how with to that? Not, how to, yeah, how to hold it better. Um, for me, it's a good balance of, I would say, some inner personal work, uh, some, fo- a, a couple really good friends that I can vent to, um, some mentorship. I have a couple of really key mentors that have really been influential, um, you know, who are 10, 15, 20 years ahead of me that can say like, yeah, I've been there. Um, sometimes you just have to totally turn it off, go for a hike. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I think I've developed some different kind of, you know, spiritual communal practices that have just helped me kind of hold it a little lighter mm-hmm. and to be able to say like, at the end of the day, it isn't me. <laughs> it, yeah. it is just what I get to do. Right. Um, and that there's a bigger story at play, you know, that like, sometimes I think it's like with, you know, teaching, you know, you, you might not see the impact of your work until 10, 15 years later when that kid writes a, writes a letter and says, right. Hey, that was a really you important a thing that you said. In my life, yeah. yeah. And I feel that sometimes, you know, I feel like the weight feel or the, the work feels the heaviest when I can't see the impact right. and I have to somehow trust that it's there. Um, and well, so, that was one of the questions yeah. I wrote down is how do you know with work like this if you're being and have been successful? Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, that's that's the question. And, it, and, I, and I mean that in two yeah. ways, not just like how do you know if the problem that somebody set out yeah. to solve you have facilitated them solve yeah. them solving. Yeah. But success is a word with many connotations yeah. in our society and especially with, re- with regard to career and work. Yeah. Success with a capital S is, yeah. am, I, am I achieving the things I want to yeah. in my life? How do yeah. you gauge that for yourself? Totally. Well, this might sound a little bit simplified, but I think um, the way I've started to really think about success uh, with this work is, are we creating relationship that might not have been there or that wasn't there before? And so to me, that's the only metric that I care about right now is are we facilitating the connection between people that otherwise wouldn't have been there? And I think with everything going on in our world, whether, whatever you know, side of the fence you fall on, I mean, we need more and more ways for people to somehow connect across boundaries and barriers and par- political parties and everything else to sort of say, I'm human, you're human, okay. And so... That's how I've been really measuring success, is have we created a moment of encounter? Um, are the projects that our grantees are doing, are they putting people in relationship where they currently weren't, you know? Um, so that's a bit of a fluffy metric, but to me, that's why I do the work. <laughs> it's, only as, it's only as fluffy as, 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 as it is meaningful yeah, to you. Yeah, I mean, it's really meaningful to me. Like, what do we mean when we say community development? You know, what does that word even mean? What does it mean when we're saying we're developing communities? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think it comes down to relationship. It comes down to, you know, people feeling a sense of belonging and like they matter and that their creative capacity has been exercised and invited. And yeah. I think that's what we're trying to do with People's Liberty. Like, I, th I think everyone has got something to offer. Um, people have more of a role to play in shaping their environment than they realize. And I think sometimes they just need the permission. And we just need to call that out of them and say, yeah, that's actually a good idea. We believe in you. Let's go. Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think that statement is important, though, across the board, that people have more control and more agency than they yeah. realize. In terms of your vocational choices. Yeah. A lot of people might listen to this and they would say, I do whatever I do for a living. I have my sure. day job. That is really interesting. That's impactful work. You have created mm -hmm. in some sense a space for yourself with, yeah. it sounds like equal parts intention and, and sort yeah. of like good fortune. Yeah, yeah. But if somebody's listening to this and they're saying, I, I want to do work that is other than what I'm currently doing. Yeah. How do I do that? Mm -hmm. Part of what I hear you saying is, it, it has come about, it has found you as you have tried to pursue the things that have been meaningful totally. to you throughout it. Yeah. Um, nuts and bolts questions, because yeah. I find it's, um, it's important if people are going to conceptualize their ability to do something they're not currently doing to make yeah. it real and concrete in their minds. Yeah. Um, first of all, tell me, I ask everybody this, tell yeah. me about your days. What do you yeah. do every day? Pick, grab a hold of a Good. typical okay. day. Tuesday. Okay. Um, here's what I do. I wake up at a really silly hour. I wake up at 5 a.m. Okay. Because I need, like for me, no one's texting me at 5 a.m. Mm -hmm. uh, and I take about two hours, which is a really long time, to just sit mm -hmm. and just to be and to be still and be silent. And there's a little bit of meditation. There's a little bit of reading and journaling and prayer. And like, that's my sacred space. Was that always time. your practice or has that come uh, as a necessity? That's of the come work? as a necessity with this work. Okay. Yeah. Um, and maybe just getting older. I don't know. That's just, but it's come. So I do that. And then I go for a walk in the woods or I go for a run, depending on the day, uh, just to, you know, keep things going, keep things moving. Um, I get to work and I run, I oversee a, a, a team, as I mentioned. And so we start the day together. We have a giant kitchen table at People's Liberty. It's with great intention that kind of the hearth has become sort of the kitchen and the, the, the mm -hmm. kitchen table. Every day starts like that. Every day starts like that. Yeah, I try really intentionally not to have any morning meetings so that I can get, be there and kick the team off. And, um, and we just look at what's, what's happening today. Um, what do we all need to be aware of? Are there big things happening in our space that we need to be mindful of? Um, and then we go around the table and we say, what's your priority for the day? What do you need help? I've been asking the question to our younger staff, where do you need more of me? Where do you need less of me? I'm trying to learn how to be a manager, which is hard. Um, and everyone gets a chance to share. Everyone gets a voice. Um, and where I need to step in and support that work, I do. Otherwise, it's then everyone's kind of off to the races. And I have... I only check my, tried to only check my email twice a day, once at the beginning of the day, once at the end of the day, because I find that uh, email, again, I have some thoughts about email, um, <laughs> it's reactive work. You're just putting out fires. Right. Right. It's not creative work. And I think um, there's, a, there's this something about deep work and shallow work, right? I'm sure there's lots of books about this. But in my mind, there's like the work that requires your full attention and your full brain. Yeah. And then there's the work that you can just do while you're waiting in line to get your cup of coffee. And email is stupid work. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I try not to do that when I'm really fresh, which happens to be the morning. So I do any like deeper creative work, thinking, uh, visioning, 
bigger picture planning kind of uh, in my mornings. I try to have lunch with somebody every day. We have some rules, sort of rules that we put on the wall uh, at People's Liberty and they are things like, um, you know, step away from your desk, go for a walk, um, have lunch with somebody. And so I try to do that just to get away. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the afternoon is usually for meetings and stupid work like email. Um, Stupid yeah, work, blocked out time for yeah, it. Yeah, blocked out time for it. Every day is a little bit different. I think the challenge for me is I'm an introvert, and so we work in a really open office environment, and our t- little team office is a giant fishbowl. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we're open to the public. That's the whole point of people's liberty is that you can come in. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not, uh, you know, a gated gated place. And so people, c- people come in. And so there might be a day where I'm really trying to get something accomplished. I've got to get something designed or whatever. And someone comes in and says, tell me about your grants. I hear you fund businesses. And we say, talk to me. No, we don't. But yeah, exactly. So that's just part of it. And learning to sort of accept those interruptions uh, has also been an interesting learning for me. <laughs> How does, um, because you are a creative person at heart, that's what you're trained in. Yet your work right now is facilitating creative work from other people. Totally. How does that work for you? Do you feel like you are doing enough of your own work or are yeah. you just putting all that energy into making other people's creative dreams happen? Man, yeah, that is, you have really distilled uh, my, <laughs> one of my biggest challenges right now is that we are the platform for other people's creativity. Right. And so my work is creating those spaces and those platforms for other people to do what they want to do. and. I, in my heart of hearts, I'm a doer as well. So I would say that uh, I've developed a lot of side projects lately that I do outside of my nine to five, which I think has been good because it allows my nine to five to just be what it is and let it be that. And then um, I've been trying to do a number of other creative projects outside of work. Uh, Some of that's working with you know, other organizations in town and just sort of doing some fun stuff. Some of that is like I've been exploring sourdough bread baking for the past I love it. year, which has been an awesome, awesome little side yeah. project. So, yeah. So that's so fascinating because I think most people would say, oh, the nature of the work that you do is imbued with so much meaning. This yeah. must be all fulfilling for you. Right. And to hear somebody who is working in a space that is so mission yeah. defined, say the way I find my particular, ful- particular yeah. fulfillment is in my side projects. Yeah, totally. Because I think that at the end of the day, it is still like, it, it's still work. And I, I don't find, I've never been able to be especially creative in that kind of structure in the sort of nine to five office environment. I would presume most folks would, would, would agree with that or, you know, would also say, well, you need to find some find some space, both yeah. physical and time, to, to let your ideas go. And I think the challenge, um, again, in an office environment is almost every hour is sort of accounted for, right? Like we, yeah. that's my schedule, you know, it's a meeting, email, lunch, this, this, this. And to get, to be creative, to have ideas, like I need four hours of uninterrupted time. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I get much, I get many more ideas and things that I enjoy doing while I'm kneading bread or walking in the woods or just finding that space yeah. to do it. Um, and I, I don't think, you know, from the beginning, I didn't expect that. I thought that this would be, people's liberty would fulfill all of these different desires and needs. But I think it's in my letting go of that 
that I've actually allowed the work just to be the work mm. and not feel like I have to get every little thing out of it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not fair to the work for me to, to put that pressure. To do everything yeah, for you. Exactly. Let me just be what it is. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. What is this work that you're doing right now preparing for you for in the future and what's ahead? Oh man. I think about that all the time. <laughs> um, I mean, you talked about the, the sort of like year of, Whatever you call yeah, it, the year, year of inquiry. Of inquiry. Yeah. What's the what's the year of inquiry saying about you and your future right now? I think that um, I think that things are being revealed that I just need to do and need to be a part of. And I think at its core is, and if I look at the past ten years and the projects that I've had the, the pleasure of being a part of, the common theme it is. It's essentially these habitats, these places, these spaces where people are coming together to impact their community. Mm. And I think I need to be building those types of things and shaping those types of things. Now, whether that happens with the Hale Foundation or with People's Liberty Version 2.0, great, that could be one path. Or whether that's me going and starting my own creative practice and finding ways to do that, that could be another path. Um, and that's kind of the question I guess I'm wrestling with at the moment is like, what does that look like? But I think that that's the common theme that I've seen unfold for me is it's in creating these places of connection um, in communities and in cities that, that need that, you know? And um, so I think, yeah, so I think that's one thing. I think we'll be in Cincinnati, which I never expected. Um, you're settling in? We're settling in. And I think that there's this real desire to want to be rooted in a place. Mm-hmm. I think my, my 20s was about flying quite high above places and dropping in and doing projects and moving on to the next place. And I think there's something about really rooting into a place and being a part of that place that feels like a sacrifice mm-hmm. sometimes, but also feels like a, like a good one. Right. So... Yeah, we'll see. All right, well, I look forward to seeing whatever it is. It's been wonderful to talk to you and really uh, informative for me, hopefully for other people as well. Cool, thanks, Brendan. I appreciate the chance. Thank you, Megan. Yeah. This episode of the Distiller Podcast was recorded live at Rose Street Cafe, 245 West McMillan Street at the corner of Rose and McMillan in Cincinnati, Ohio. Thanks again to Megan Trishler, Program Director at People's Liberty, for joining us on the show. You can learn more about People's Liberty by checking out this episode on thedistillerpodcast.com. We have photos, information, links to People's Liberty's website and social media pages. And you can also learn more about Rose Street Cafe, Ohio's first fair trade coffee house and University Christian Church in which Rose Street is located. Thanks to Keaton and the staff of Rose Street for hosting us and for the delicious coffee, and especially for that amazing chocolate chip cookie I had on the way out the door. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson, with co-production, booking, and photography from Terry Heist. The show is mixed by Justin Golden, our logo was designed by Scott Ryan, and our videos are by Mike Helm. You can find The Distiller on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and on TuneIn. Please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released, and if you like what you hear, please do rate or review The Distiller wherever you listen. Those ratings and reviews make a big difference in helping us get the word out. You can also download episodes, find links and information, including photos of the guests and locations, or just get in touch with us, all at thedistillerpodcast.com, or drop us a line at mail at thedistillerpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you, including to suggest people you think should be on the show to talk about their search for meaningful work, or if you think there's somewhere interesting we should record the show, 
or something interesting we should drink while doing it, whether by email on the website or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.